Please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. This morning we'll look at the God-given resolutions in this passage so that we will experience the joy of a life that is honoring to God and helpful to others. I don't know the details of all of uh, your upbringings, but I can assure you that mine was not focused in the church upon helping others. That never crossed my mind. It was never presented to me as anything of any kind of worth or value. And I think that that's probably not all that unusual. Now, in certain circumstances, there is, in the church context, a call to be involved in other people's lives, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, serving one another. But I can't help but wonder if there couldn't be, and we want to focus on our church because that's where we can have an impact, if there couldn't be and perhaps shouldn't be a greater focus upon what is necessary to in fact actually become qualified to help others. What needs to take place in the human heart? What needs to take place in the practice of one's life before he or she can genuinely have impact, positive, spiritually effective impact on the lives of others. If you're in Christ, you want to help others. You want to help them spiritually. You want to help them practically. And maybe you've found yourself a little frustrated at times because you don't know where to begin. You don't know what to do. Maybe you've found some success in that and you've really been invigorated by that. You've, you've enjoyed that. That's good. Not because you feel good about yourself, but because you're glad that the Lord is using you to be involved in someone else's life. He's made you useful. If you look at that string of qualities in the life of a Christian in 2 Peter chapter 1, you see that Peter says, if you are practicing these things, you will not be useless. I can remember a dear friend of mine, a pastor years ago, saying to me, Todd, you need to spend some time in your life working on becoming useful to the body of Christ. And of course, you know the obvious implication. It was that I was not useful. And the reality is that was very true. And so what is it that leads to a life that is in fact useful for the body? One that you could look back on in the end of your life and say, the Lord used me. I I didn't earn that. I, I didn't achieve it. But by God's grace and in his kindness, he used me to be humble and to be faithful, to be effective in the lives of others. And that's what you want. If you love Christ, you love people And you love to help others and you want to be certain that that help is actually permanent. That it doesn't just make someone feel good for the moment or for a week or for a while. But that in eternity you can recount that your efforts were spirit filled. They were driven by God's word and your understanding of them came from God's word. And in so doing you can say the Lord did a good work. And I had the privilege to ride on the coattails of it. As I said this morning, we want to look at the God-given resolutions in Psalm 101 so that we will experience the joy of a life that is honoring to God and helpful to others. Here in Psalm 101, as David prepares to take the throne as God's appointed and anointed king of Israel, he makes serious resolve to prepare his own life for the protection of of others. He makes serious resolve. You know what word we get from the word resolve? 
We get that word that starts becoming important to you around the middle of December. And you determined that you're going to make resolutions for the new year. And all too often, uh, the pendulum tends to swing in one direction or the other. I live by making these resolutions and then I die by them on January 6th or so. Uh, Or one might say resolutions are not biblical. I think that after we've been through this passage this morning and you have an understanding of what the word resolution means, you'll understand that resolutions are not only biblical, they are crucial. I recommend you not wait till January 1st. I recommend you start on July 7th. And that's today's date, in case you're wondering. (laughs) So God has described David at this point as a man after his heart. That's the character of David. In verses 1 to 4 this morning in our text in Psalm 101, he reveals a solemn willingness in David's heart to give careful and diligent attention to the needful changes of his own soul. He desires to be sanctified or cleansed, purified, and so he sets his heart to this end. Having done this then, he is preparing himself to deal with what he addresses in verses 5 to 8. He turns his attention to the destruction of the wicked for the sake of the righteous. This is a psalm of praise to God and purification of self, purging of evil, leading to the protection of others. There is a desperate need in the life of the person who would be helpful to others that he himself has purified himself. The way Jesus addresses this in the book of Matthew is he says, be sure that you've removed the log from your own eye before you attempt to remove the speck or the splinter from someone else's. It's a call to a life of holiness and a recognition of a lack of holiness when it exists. It's David's personal resolution to sing to the Lord, to sanctify self, to separate from the wicked, and safeguard God's children from danger. It should be the same for you and me. This should be the passions of our lives. You and I should be characterized by these patterns. We should learn from David's personal theological commitments to make them our own. Ten times, ten times in this passage, David resolves himself to particular heartfelt resolutions with the volitional words, I will. Now, if you want a good definition of the word resolution, there you have it. I will. You're speaking about something in regard to the future that you, for certain, will see come to pass. That's your desire, that's your commitment, you're resolving to do that, if you want a, a list of some excellent resolutions, uh, go online and Google Jonathan Edwards resolutions, and you will find that at the age of 19, 19 years old, his resolutions will probably put yours and mine to shame. And yet, by God's grace, we can learn from them and devote ourselves to faithful and effective lives. These 10 I wills go like this. I will sing of love and justice. I will make music. I will ponder blamelessness. I will walk in integrity. I will look away from worthless things. I will know no evil. I will destroy slanderers. I will not endure arrogant people. I will look with favor on the faithful. And I will destroy the wicked. Four times... 
David resolves that certain realities will come to pass with the certainty of the term shall. Four times he uses the word shall. And in so doing, it goes like this. The work of the wicked shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. Those who practice deceit shall not live in my house. Liars shall not be in my presence. So if you choose not to be willfully involved in your own life spiritually, as David chose to be involved in his own life willfully, spiritually, the unfortunate reality is that you will render yourself useless in the lives of others. Usefulness in the lives of others begins with a cleansing of one's own self. And so these willful statements, these resolutions, I personally in my own life have found crucial. I found them to be tremendously helpful. And yet I need help in this myself. I need your encouragement. I need your strength to help me maintain a devotion to these resolutions as I believe you need mine. Together this morning, let's look carefully at these resolutions in David's heart and life so that we too will experience the value of personal soul cleansing with the result of effective involvement in the lives of others for the sake of their protection. That's what this is about. You want to be effectively involved in other people's lives for the sake of their spiritual and practical protection. This is how the text reads. Psalm 101 verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Point number one, I will sing to the God of the Bible. I will sing to the God of the Bible. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. I will sing specifically to the God of the Bible. It's one thing to sing. And it's one thing to even become very emotional and genuine and heartfelt in your passion. But as you know, in John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, there is coming a day when God will desire worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Not just worship in spirit. That means to do so in your spirit wholeheartedly, genuinely. Not just wholehearted and genuinely, but in truth. This is the same desire of David when he pens these words here in this psalm. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. But this is the normal daily mindset of the one whom God has redeemed. It's not unusual for him to sing from his heart with his mouth. We sang one song together earlier. We'll sing some songs together at the end of the service as we always do. The reason we do it in that order is so that you will have been reminded or taught, instructed from the word of God and your heart is prepared to do just what David is declaring that he does on a practical basis in his own life. You see, music is from the Lord. 
Music is the gift of the Lord to us through which we give back to Him. And you know this, and I mentioned it in my prayer earlier from Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, we're even called to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to whom? To each other. That's what the text says, to each other. Why? Because we're teaching each other. That's the context of the passage in Colossians. We're instructing one another in how to sing to the Lord. So it's an educational process, but it's, it's a heartfelt process. It's an intimate moment, not between you and Jesus, between you and Jesus and the body of Christ. Johann Sebastian Bach said, The aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. See, that's what you and I should be longing for when we sing to the Lord. That it's refreshing to the soul because it's honoring to the Lord. And we're involved in that which displays His great glory. So when we choose songs for our worship service, we don't choose them by uh, how easy they are to remember or by how catchy they are. Nothing wrong with either of those things. But we choose them primarily by the theology in the text of the song because the purpose is to glorify God and to do so by teaching one another how to do that through song. To the believer, singing should come as naturally as breathing. It shouldn't be unusual to break out into song in the middle of what would otherwise be a mundane, man-centered day. The best songbook you've ever had access to is in the middle of your Bible, by the way. You refer to it as the Psalter. And from that Psalter, from that songbook, in Psalm 100, we read, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. And are you aware of this? The only religion in the world that sings is Christianity. I was in Israel years ago and there in the Jerusalem uh, quadrant where four major religions share some land. Uh, early one morning, I heard some chanting. And some might, some might say, well, that, that's singing. No, it's not. What I heard was not singing. But singing is intended to be melodious. It's intended to be joyous. It's intended to be beautiful. Why? Because that's what the Lord deserves. That's what he calls us to be involved in. Why would you sing to a God who is not a God of mercy? Why would you sing to a God who is not a God of grace, a God of love, a God of compassion? What would there be to sing about? Oh Lord, thank you that you kill us when we're bad. You know, that's not a good song. That's not going to make the top 40 or even the top 100. But we sing what we sing. Why? Because we are grateful for what he has done and for who he is. Charles Spurgeon said, Everything in God's dealings with us may properly become the theme of a song. And we have not properly viewed his dealings until we can sing about them. Now think of this. You notice this when I read verse 1. David 
resolves to sing not only of God's love, but his what? His justice. His certainty that he will make all wrongs right. And as you know, that's painful. That involves discipline for the believer. It ultimately involves wrath for the unbeliever. How do we do that? (laughs) How do we sing about God's love and justice or his righteousness? Well, I don't have to tell you what it's about to sing of God's love. You could probably quickly recount 5, 10, 15 songs that include singing to or about or with gratitude for God's love. But did you know you just sang a song that spoke of his righteousness? The words go like this. No earthly mind would dare invent a substitute from heaven sent, the Lamb, to pay for sin and take the guilt. Through innocent divine blood spilt, the Lamb, Lamb of God. No greater thought can be conceived than what you did to purchase me, O Lord, from sin, despair, and Satan's spell, from righteous wrath, eternal hell. O Lord. That's a song of justice. And it recounts the reality that God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. You say, but I'm guilty. You're guilty. We are made innocent, ultimately, in that the just died for the unjust. We call this substitutionary atonement. It's not difficult terminology. You understand the word substitute. A substitute steps in and receives what someone else was intended to receive. Atonement is simply a covering. Jesus Christ's death covers the sins of those who trust in him. And so David cries out to the Lord, thanking him for his justice. Uh, Does it make any sense that one would thank God that justice is applied to him, himself, specifically? Or that God would somehow apply justice while still extending mercy and love. Like that would make the better sense. And so that's what we sing about, right? It would be weird. It would be strange. It wouldn't really fit God's character for us to simply sing about God's righteousness in that his righteousness means that his wrath is poured out upon the unrighteous. We don't sing about that. David didn't sing about that. David sang about the reality that in Christ's death, righteousness is applied. God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't withhold his wrath in any sense at all. He simply applies it to the one who did not deserve it so that those who do deserve it will not experience it. So we can sing of that. We can give him great thanks for that. Well, next in our passage, David commits to a life of integrity, a blameless lifestyle. I believe you and I should join David in that endeavor. Point number two, I will sanctify my life. I will not only sing to the God of the Bible, that's important, not just singing arbitrary lyrics that might not necessarily be congruous with what the scripture teaches, but singing of the Lord, as the Lord has defined himself in the Bible, that's, I will sing to the Lord of the Bible. Point number two, as I said, I will sanctify my life. I will be engaged in cleansing. That's what that word means, sanctify. I will cleanse my life. 
I will look over my life. I will examine my life. Letter A, we're going to give you three sub-points here. Letter A under point number two. By perfecting my heart. By perfecting my heart. Verse 2 says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. You've heard it said this way before. That guy is a man of integrity. He's the same person in the privacy of his own home as he is at the workplace. He's the same man in the privacy of his own mind. That's really the issue here. I will walk in integrity of heart. That's internal. You can't see my heart. I can't see yours. But that's where everything that we say and do comes from. Jesus said, out of the mouth speaks the heart. What you say and what you do is a result of who you are. And so David's devotion here is not just to be a person who does good deeds. A person who looks good on, you know, Sunday morning, or in his case, Saturday morning. But he's committed to a lifestyle of personal, internal integrity. Friends, this begins with your thought life. It begins with your heart attitudes. Let me ask you, where is your mind? Where is your mind right now? Are you longing in the quietness and the privacy of your own mind where no one but the Lord can see to bring honor to Him with regard to the thoughts that you think? Let me get real personal and ask you, do you have bitter thoughts in this moment towards someone? That's fair for me to ask that because I'm not asking you to answer me out loud and I'm certainly not assuming or implying that I have any idea what's going on in your heart. I'm simply asking you to deal with you. I'll deal with me and you deal with you and we trust that the Lord will do that work in us. That we would be as David, that we would walk with integrity in our hearts, in our houses. Interesting, isn't it? Two layers of defense against a life that does not exhibit integrity. Number one, the privacy of the walls within my own home. But two, far, far, far more important, the privacy of what goes on in my own mind. Proverbs 13, verse 6 says, Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. The one whose way is blameless. This is what David focuses on here. Psalm 19, verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see here that David calls upon the Lord to produce in him that kind of integrity. That David would be that kind of man means that he must be dependent upon the Lord to produce that in him. You and I can't achieve that. You and I can't clean ourselves up by changing our language. I remember when I was in junior high, I decided I was going to stop cussing. I decided I was going to stop using foul language because I was pretty sure that people around me didn't like it. That lasted about a week. And it wasn't until the Lord did a work in my heart many years later that began to change the desires of my heart. And you know this. If you're in Christ, you know this. You have a new nature. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to righteousness. And yet with great clarity and significance, Paul explains to us in Romans 7 that there is yet the flesh. So you battle that flesh until you go home to be with the Lord, at which point you are fully and completely sanctified. But your role and my role today is to ask the Lord to sanctify us, but also to engage in the duties of obeying the commands of Scripture that result in the Lord actually producing that sanctification. Now, I know that was a long sentence. 
So let me give it to you in a nutshell. You have a duty to obey the commands of the Bible. And you say, well, does that really honor the Lord if I do that without it being heartfelt? Primarily, the commands of the Bible are to have a right heart. And the things that you and I struggle with are not so much knowing what the Bible says to do, it's having the motivation to do them and to do them with the right heart attitude. And so even as David did, we cry out to him and ask him to keep us from presumptuous sins. You know what presumption is? Presumption says, I'm going to do it even though I know it's wrong, but I know I'll be forgiven. That's presumption. I think if you look closely at Romans 3, you will see that that person is not in Christ. He is yet condemned, Paul says in that text. And so David crying out to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to be guilty of of presumption. Because presumption brings your wrath. Presumptuous sin, running headlong into sin, saying, I know know I'll be forgiven because, you know, God forgives sin. That's what he does. That's presumption. And it proves that that person is not in Christ. So David says, Lord, I plead with you to protect me from that. This word blameless here simply means mature. It's the same word as perfect. In our culture, perfect means something far different than what this means. The idea is that you're perfecting yourself in that you're knocking off imperfections. You're saying no to them. You're denying yourself of them. In Hebrews 12, verse 14, we read, Strive for peace with everyone. See, this is one good indication as to whether or not you're pursuing holiness or blamelessness effectively. Are you at peace primarily with people? Is there constant strife between, you know, is it always an argument? Is everything always funneled down into some disagreement? Or, on the other hand, are you a person who loves peace? You want peace. Not at all costs, but at the right costs. Paul says, insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Here in Hebrews 12, verse 14, the passage says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How many times... Have you heard someone say, well, you know, he made a decision when he was six or eight. He's not walking with the Lord now, but I know he's a Christian. You see, friends, that, that is completely anti-biblical. That's not just unbiblical. It's, a, it's completely opposed to what the Scripture teaches. John says we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. The mark of a person who is in Christ is a life of holiness. You've got to get this. You've got you to understand this. We're not saying that that person has achieved but that the Lord has granted in his kindness. So that person gets no credit for it, right? Think of it that way. When you see someone who walks in holiness, you don't look at that person and say, whoa, he is awesome. No, we say the Lord has done an awesome work in a sinner. The Lord has set that person apart. But the person who wants nothing to do with that and says, well, nobody's perfect. I mean, I suppose you're going to judge me for my sin. I think the right response to the person who says nobody's perfect is, you know, I wasn't accusing you of being perfect. I didn't think you were even close. Nor do I think I'm even close. In fact, I'm probably not as close as you are. But the reality is we're not talking about personally earned perfection. We're talking about a life that God sets apart unto holiness. And that's the mark of a Christian. It's a mark of a believer even in David's day. Listen to this in Colossians 1.28. Why should this be a passion for the, the, the shepherding staff of your church? Why should this be what... The shepherds of the church, the local church in which you are involved in serving Jesus Christ faithfully, why should this be a devotion of their hearts? Because in Colossians 1.28, Paul says, we proclaim Him. Right? You get that part. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man. It means to warn. 
warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. That means we do the hard work in the scripture under the dominion of the Holy Spirit to determine whether or not our interpretations are the Holy Spirit's interpretations. All too often, and it happens all over the place, men will use the word of God as a platform upon which to speak political agendas or whatever. All kinds of things. They have some kind of axe to grind with somebody in the congregation. And so they, hmm, where can I find a passage that's going to deal with Oh, yeah, I know where that is. uh, Ecclesiastes, that's where it is. I'll really get him with that. I'll preach three sermons on it. Hopefully he'll come over to my side. You know, that happens. That happens. But the, the man who would be a shepherd must be faithful to this task in Colossians 1, 28. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete, perfected, mature in Christ. And we're not talking about Wesleyan sinlessness. It's not the idea that you somehow arrive at the place where you no longer sin. Because that will not happen in this lifetime. But we pursue a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. This is the goal of solid Bible teaching. And Paul goes on in verse 29 to say that he labors and agonizes with God's energy to complete that. So it's the Lord doing the work in the pastor who would study faithfully, who would live these things himself and have the credibility to teach them and warn others so that they too would experience the maturing work that the Lord does in his word. That's how that works. Psalm 119 verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Where did this idea come from? That you can be a person who does not walk in the law of the Lord. And that God would somehow bless you. It did not come from the Bible. Verse 80 in Psalm 119 goes on to say, May my heart, this is a plea of the person who longs to have God's favor, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. It wouldn't take long for you or for me for us to sit down together and develop a list of men and women who have been shamed publicly, who claim the name of Christ, and who live lives who do not reflect what it means to know Christ. And again, some would say, well, who are you to judge? And we would say the scripture calls us to live this kind of life and to recognize that this is what separates the believer from the unbeliever. Otherwise, there's no reason for evangelism. Who do we evangelize, by the way, if we ourselves are not called to lives of holiness? What are we evangelizing them to? The idea that sins are forgiven and no change takes place in someone's life? That's a destructive and dishonest and deceptive message. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20 says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Don't be childish about this. Be biblical. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. There it is again. Be mature. We said to you from Ephesians 4 using Paul's words last week, grow up. Grow up into the head. Be like Christ. Ephesians 4.13, you know it from this morning, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. There it is again. Mature manhood. One's life changes. When he is in infancy in Jesus Christ, we say he's an infant. And we don't look at him and expect him to be mature. That is equally unkind. 
You've seen that before, where someone comes into the church, he's brand new, he's excited, the Lord saves him, and we expect him to act like the oldest saint in the church and to be that mature, and when he doesn't, we treat him poorly. Oh, he's probably not a Christian, you know, he doesn't even understand much about the Bible. Well, no, he's an infant, right? You've, you've seen an infant before, they need help. I've, an infant needs a lot of help, by the way. After resolving to praise the God of the Bible, who is merciful and righteous, to perfect his own life, David then resolves to protect his own heart. So to be, I will sanctify my life by protecting my heart. Still on point two. I will sanctify my life, letter B, by protecting my heart. Listen to what David says here in verse three. I will not set before my eyes. Now stop there. Again, not asking for a show of hands. But probably every one of us can look back at a time in our lives when if we had simply turned our eyes away, whatever happened that shouldn't have, wouldn't have. If we had simply turned our eyes away from the temptation and moved on, changed the channel, right? Unplug it, sell it, whatever you got to do. If we had simply chosen not to allow the eyes to linger. All of us have too many instances in our lives where we can look back and say, we should have looked away. I will not set before my eyes. That's the deal. That's the commitment. What? Set before my eyes what? Anything that is without worth. He doesn't even say anything that's sinful. Without worth, you know what that means. It means it doesn't have value. He's not saying that it's intrinsically, grossly wicked and evil. He's simply saying things that are a waste of time. Don't tempt yourself. You've got but one opportunity in this lifetime. To live a life which would ultimately be helpful to others. He says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And then this, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. You see the progression? A willingness to allow one's eyes to look on things that he shouldn't be looking at, what does it lead to? It leads to the work of those who, who, who go apostate, those who abandon the faith, those who run from Christ. He says, it shall not fasten its grip on me. I love Proverbs 4, specifically in verse 23. The proverb reads, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your eyes look directly ahead. In the information era in which we live, too often there are too many gadgets and things to to draw our attention away from the road when we're driving. It's a good illustration to help us to understand that spiritually too often our eyes are focused on something other than the task at hand. I used to work for FedEx delivering packages. And I remember in the training when we were going through the test, you know, you drive around, the three other trainees are there in the truck with you and you're giving an assessment of them as they drive and, and you of them, etc. And I'll never forget one guy that I had been through this training with for, I forget what it was, six or eight weeks. And here he is driving the truck and I thought for sure he would do well. And I was stunned. I was stunned to see that with the manager sitting in the seat next to him and me and one other trainee in the back watching He's checking out every billboard, every person that walks down the sidewalk, even commenting on cars and motorcycles. I couldn't believe it. So I was asked to do a review. And I simply said, I think 
you need to keep your focus on the task at hand. It's too easy for us to be focused on something other than the task at hand. What is the task at hand? It's the protection of your own heart. Sanctify your life by protecting your own heart. Not only perfecting your heart, not only engaging in the maturing process by sitting under proper teaching, surrounding yourself with godly people who engage in that proper teaching, but also a willingness to actually protect your heart, to guard it. It's another good term for that. Guard your heart. Proverbs 5.22 His own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. You see, you don't want that. You don't want to be caught entangled in the cords of your sin. You can picture that, right? You're, you're wrapped up like in a clothesline and all you can do is barely get your fingers out to point at other people. Somehow it's their fault. That's what the, the person who is entangled in his own sin does. He's so encumbered by his own sin, all I can think to do is somehow figure out how it's somebody else's fault. You don't want that. Protect your heart from the things that would lead you into that mindset. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Protect your heart. Don't go to those places. Don't subject yourself to those things that you know are going to provide a temptation. J.C. Ryle said, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences for sin forgiven. See, if you're forgiven for your sin, you're grateful that you're forgiven for it, and now you hate it. So you will do what's necessary to protect your heart from it. David's next effort is to go even deeper. Having committed to protecting his heart, he devotes now to cleaning it out. Point number two, letter C, by purifying my heart. He goes further here. I will sanctify my life by, letter C, purifying my heart. See, that's different from protecting, right? If you're a father or if you're a mother or if you're somebody who loves people, right? You're committed to protecting others that you love. But you know quite well that in many instances, there's a need to help a person produce change in the habits of his life. So you're going to sit down with that person if you feel that it's helpful and say, hey, you know, I know you keep having this problem and um, maybe you ought to consider the pattern in your life that's leading to that problem. I love you. i just trying to help. David's committed to this in his own life. He says in verse 4, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will distance myself from it. A perverse heart, an unjust, a wicked heart, it'll be far from me. So he's not only now choosing to stand guard against what he allows into his eyes, into his heart, into his life. Now he's eliminating things. Now he's willing to say, you know, there's residual stuff. If you've been in Christ for a few years, you might say, you know what, every now and then I have this dream and stuff gets conjured back up or just a thought pops into my head. You want to do what you can to purge that. You say, I can't help my thoughts. No, yes, you can. Yes, you can. By displacing them with godly thoughts. Read Philippians 4. What a good text on that. Philippians 4 verse 8 tells you what to focus on. Colossians 3, Paul says, set your mind on things Above, and that helps displace this. But more specifically, you see, this starts with acknowledging that impurities exist in the heart. 
See, the guy who doesn't want to hear this message, the guy who doesn't want to hear that he has impurities in his heart, is usually the guy who is most critical of others who have impurities in their hearts. Don't tell me I've got impurities in my heart. How are you supposed to know that? Because the Bible says you do. And me too. And so we ought to love each other enough to be willing to help each other in the practice. But really this starts, as I said, with a willful decision to do this ourselves. This starts with you working in you. It starts with me working in me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will acknowledge that there's perversion in my heart. And I will distance myself from it. I will know no evil. I will not dwell on anything that's evil. I will eradicate it from my being. This takes hard work. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Right? So as I said, it starts with an acknowledgement that that stuff's in there. You and I are going to live a lifelong effort of acknowledging first that the impurities are there and then being willing to do that which is necessary to remove them. That you will do that till you die. It's one of the reasons heaven will be so wonderful. But David says in Psalm 51, I debated whether or not to preach from Psalm 51 or Psalm 101 this morning. Psalm 51, as you know, is such a rich treatise on repentance. And in verse 10, David says, Oh God, create in me a clean heart. Created me a clean heart. Why? Because my heart's not clean. There are, there's a lack of cleanness in my heart. God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We don't use that word much today, steadfast. It's a good word, though. It's perseverance. Lord, produce in me a willingness to keep on keeping on. Help me to persevere. Help me hang in there. Do what's right. And I love this from 1 John 3, verse 3. We've talked about this before. What's the standard? Is the standard something better than what you and I are experiencing now? Is it someone in our lives? Is it a neighbor? Is it a pastor? Is it someone that you grew up admiring? Here's the standard, 1 John 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if your hope is in Jesus Christ... You set Him as your standard. You purify yourself just as He is pure. And any degree of purity in your life that falls short of His purity is unacceptable. That's how you've got to see it. You've got to say there are impurities in my life, there are impurities in my heart. Jesus Christ is the standard. I want to look to Him for that. How do you do that? You read the Word. You, you sit under teaching that exalts Him for who He really is. You don't sit under teaching that minimizes the significance of Jesus Christ's purity. You acknowledge the God of the Bible. You sing to the God of the Bible, and you let the God of the Bible be the standard for the sake of purifying your own life. If not, where would you set the standard? Have you thought, ever thought of it that way? Who would the standard be? What would be good enough? Someone that you know to have been a faithful person, that's the standard. If I could just be as pure as that person, then I'd be fine. And God says that's not good enough. That alone is worthy of God's judgment. You say, well, I can't do that. And so what's the basis? Where do you start? You start by trusting the one whose purity is flawless. 
And He is your advocate. At the point where you and I stand guilty before the throne of God and we say, I never achieved any degree of perfection. I didn't even come close. No one ever said to me, nobody's perfect, but you're close. Nobody ever said to me, wow, you're an amazing saint. When we stand before the throne of God and we stand rightly accused, then what do we do? We bow before the one who stood in our place and took the punishment. And we thank him that he produced in us a passion for purity. A willingness to be involved in the purification of our own hearts. Proverbs 28.13, we preached from this a few weeks ago. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You know, the guy who hides his sin. He will not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes his iniquities will find, you might think he's about to say, he will find prosperity. It's not what he says. He will find compassion. And so the definition of prosperity is compassion. Spiritual prosperity is God's compassion on your life. That he, not based upon your performance, but based upon Christ's substitutionary death and his resurrection, has poured his compassion out on you. So you, you walk with gratitude for that. And so you hate your sin. You confess to God what he already knows. You confess it and you forsake it. What does it mean to forsake it? It means to turn your back on it. It means to turn your mind on it. It means you hate it. It's a righteous indignation. It's a holy hatred for the things that God hates. Well, point number three. I will safeguard God's children. I love this part. I love this part. I think you do too. See, now I can help others. You see that? I will safeguard God's children. Now, it's interesting how David starts with this. You got another couple subpoints here, okay? Letter A. Letter A. I will safeguard God's children, letter A, by division. By division. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Now, don't run out and start killing people who look at you wrong. Okay? Because that's not what the Lord is calling you or me to do. But David being the king, necessarily had the responsibility of separating the kingdom, the people in the current earthly kingdom, the Jews, from those who would attack them. And where did that always start? It started with some slanderous, wicked gossip-related thought. So what is the call upon your life and my life? What do we learn from this to separate ourselves from those who claim to be in Christ and yet engage in slander? There comes a time where you must reject the factious man. It's the command of Paul in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You say, what are you, so you know, you shoot the wounded? You know, I really hate that phrase. Because that's not what this is at all. But too often people will say, you know, I've experienced that before. And bless your heart, I mean, God's grace to you if you've undergone some horrible, difficult experience like that where the church simply judged you and expected you to have some degree of perfection. Because that sadly happens. But friends, I'm here to tell you, from what I understand, that usually happens because there is a lack of love in church discipline. Instead of dealing with sin on a regular and faithful basis, what happens is the leadership waits until it gets so bad that everybody's going, are we ever going to deal with this? 
And now there's this unloving lack of compassion poured out upon that person that if we don't deal with that person, then people are going to wonder if we ourselves aren't, you know, messing around with some stuff we shouldn't be. So there should be a culture of willingness to be engaged in each other's lives by safeguarding each other from the self-detriment and the self-destruction of one's own sin. In Psalm 15, verse 1, David says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Verse 3 says, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. His willingness, his passion, his desire is to do that which exhibits God's holiness. And he loves others enough to live a life devoted to God, devoted to personal holiness, that allows the opportunity to help that person be protected from the destruction of his unholiness. It's not a matter of judgment. It's not a matter of calling someone to be as good as you are. It's a matter of recognizing that the path of sin is a path to destruction. And if we love people, we will warn them about the path that they're on. We'll do it with love. We'll do it with kindness. We'll do it privately. We'll do it in a setting where there's a relationship. You see, this is why we have discipleship. This is why we're starting our family groups. So that you can have intimate interaction with others with whom you have the platform. That they can come to you and say, how can I help you? You know, you remember this from from Galatians? That we are to bear one another's burdens. And in the context of that passage, the only thing burdens could mean there is sin. And too often we look at people when they're in sin, we say, oh, when's he going to get his act together? And what we ought to be thinking is, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to be in that condition. He doesn't want to be burdened with sin. We should love him enough to have a platform with him, to serve him in such a way that he knows we love him. Because he's experiencing the burden of sin. The self-condemnation of a sinful life. The person who doesn't want that, He doesn't understand the seriousness of sin and he doesn't understand the seriousness of the consequences for sin. And that in and of itself warrants our willingness to love him. John MacArthur has said, it is impossible to associate regularly with wicked people without being contaminated by their ideas and by their habits. Now friends, that's just an axiomatic reality. You get that. You become like the people that you subject yourself to. In verse 7, David goes on to say, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. So many implications here. So many implications here. But again, we must safeguard God's children by division. If we're going to protect God's children, we will do so by dividing from those who claim to know the Lord. You know this. We're not saying divide from those who say they want nothing to do with Christ and prove that they don't. Serve those people. Love those people. Engage in their lives. Sacrifice for them. The person that we would separate ourselves from is the one who takes God's name in vain. What does that look like? He claims God's name and then he walks completely differently. 
Why? Because think of it. The person who says he wants nothing to do with Christ and proves it by his actions is looking to determine whether or not we are the real thing. Why would he want anything to do with the church? If the church is a commingling of people who are in Christ and are pursuing holy lives and a bunch of other people who claim to be in Christ and have no interest in holiness. What kind of draw is that for the unbeliever? It's not. It's hypocrisy. And no wonder unbelievers look at us and think we're out of our minds. It's because we're not willing to address the sin that blasphemes Christ and turns the unbeliever away. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. In verse 8, Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. It's important to be careful to know what you're doing when you begin to cut off evildoers. It's important to have your your life right. In John 7 verse 24 we read, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment call upon the church in 1 Corinthians 5 to judge itself, to judge the body leaving the judgment of the world to the Lord. We don't judge the world. 1 Corinthians 5 is a call to judge one another not to condemn, that's a totally different word, but to assess each other's lives. Paul really chastises the Corinthians for not doing that this call in our lives to set ourselves apart from the wicked involves a willingness to actually be set apart. Over six brings us to letter B. Point number three, letter B. I will safeguard God's children by discipleship. By discipleship. Not just by dividing from people who claim to know Christ but clearly aren't. Who are really annoying to the world as they look on, right? Well, you people say you're different. Well, we got to, in fact, be different. So we divide from those who claim to be different but aren't. But we also disciple those who really desire to be different. Pour ourselves into them. This is why we have Iron Men. And we started the church and said, you know, as the pastor, I'm going to pour my life into men. That's what I do. I love it. I love every minute of it. Verse 6, David says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. Now let me just tell you, I've been in the ministry a little over 20 years, uh, a little more than that. And for me, one of the things that brings me greatest joy is to serve and sacrifice for, and be involved in men's lives. Many times. Because the result is that I am personally encouraged and strengthened by their spiritual growth, and I learn from them. More times than I could possibly recount to you have I been encouraged and strengthened, even with regard to my own sin. That someone would come to me and say, Todd, you were not gracious when you were speaking to that person. Or Todd, you know, your sermon, I don't know, you sounded angry. Well, I need to hear that. 
You know, Todd, I think you could have said this more clearly. Uh, You know, you missed the point of the passage. (laughs) And whatever it is, I am encouraged and strengthened by men in whose life I have poured my life and now are pouring their lives back into mine, but also are willing to pour their lives into other men. And that's how the church works. There's no such thing as a church without discipleship. It does not exist. That is not a church. One of the primary responsibilities, the mission of the church, is not simply to go win people to Christ. It's to win people to discipleship under Christ. Look a little more closely at Matthew 28. We are to disciple them. We're to disciple them. What does David say here? He goes back to this issue of blamelessness. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. You know, as a result of this passage and having spent some time in it together, I I trust that the Lord would use every single one of us to pursue a genuine hunger for exalting God properly by singing to the God of the Bible, acknowledging His character as the the Bible lays it out, but but also a willingness to sanctify our own lives. And then as a result, a willingness to safeguard the flock. That's how it works. Crystal clear here, isn't it? And praise God that there are passages like this in the Bible that are relatively short and give us so much practical theology that would help us understand how best to honor Him. Father, we give you thanks this morning because you have, in fact, given us the great privilege of being ambassadors for you And yet you've done so exclusively based upon the person and the work of Christ and by no merit of our own. And so we we hope to come to you humbly and and ask that you would always uh, help us to be mindful of the fact that we've, we've earned nothing. We've got no claim on any role in the church. We've got no claim on any ability in people's lives. But we we claim Christ. We proclaim Christ. We warn each other, as is the command of the scripture, admonishing, strengthening, and teaching, and encouraging each other. So we look to you now, Father, asking that you would do this continued perfecting work in our body through the Lord's table. And Lord, as you do that, we trust that your glory would be greatly and magnificently known, that a lost and dying world would look at us from afar see that our desire, our passion, our devotion is in fact to help them to know the joy of trusting and knowing Christ because He is good. Not only is He great and righteous, but He is good and He is good to those who trust Him. Amen.